name of the book <laughs> is uh, The Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss, My Life with Terence McKenna. Okay, guys, welcome to the Grimerica Show. We got a, a great guest tonight. We've been looking forward to him for a long time. Um, first of all, with me, as always, is Graham. How are you doing tonight, Graham? Yeah, hey, I'm doing pretty good. I'm really excited here to talk to Dennis McKenna. Yeah, Dennis McKenna, we're uh, thrilled to have you on. Thanks. Uh, how are you doing this fine evening? I'm doing well. I'm happy to be here. Um, I'm sorry it took so long to work this out, but here we are. Yeah, I'm sure it'll be uh, worth the wait for, for all the listeners. Um, just so everyone uh, knows what kind of what we're talking about, uh, we're talking uh, going to be talking mostly about your book, The Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss, My Life with Terrence McKenna. Um, I suppose if you could just start, I, I really like the story about how the book came to be. I found it pretty ironic that how, how Terrence used to speak so prophetically about the internet and everything it was going to bring to the to society, it seems fitting that the internet almost helped to produce uh, the, his life story. Well, yeah, I think so. I, I mean, I, it never would have occurred to me that that it would have been born this way. But I was actually kind of led down this path by his agent, uh, Dan Levy. I was in New York in uh, December 2010, I believe it was. And I was thinking about writing this book and I met with Dan and he said, well, you know, there's this new thing out there, Kickstarter. <laughs> and uh, you should give it a try, you know. So I thought, well, that's maybe and i went on their website and it looked good and and so the rest is history i you know i didn't do anything actually i didn't do anything right i probably did everything wrong but i was in the right place at the right time and so terence has an existing fan base out there and so you know the word went out and i raised enough money to pay for the book and pay for my time and and it was great, actually. Yeah, I suppose that's the toughest part is is buying the time to sit down and write it. It takes away from so many other things. Yeah, it is. I mean, for me, I don't know about you guys, but I know for me and a lot of my friends, we're, we're time challenged these days. I mean, uh, we just don't have enough of it. You know, I, I was on... Uh, I, w I did an appearance uh, last spring with Doug Reshkoff. I don't know if you know him, but he, he, he'd be a good guy for you to have on your show. He's kind of a, you know, he's an essayist. He's a cultural commentator, and he's written uh, very much about the interactions between technology and, and human behavior, I guess you could say. And his latest book is Present Shock. And... Uh, yeah, it's all about how, you know, nobody has any time anymore because everything is, you know, happening at once, it seems like, which is kind of like what Terrence predicted, but not in the way that he predicted, you know. Um, we, we thought computers were going to save us all this time. What a, what a con job that was. Yeah, instead they ended up consuming it. In, in, indeed. We have less time than ever to get less done in uh, the same amount of time. But anyway, such is life. Right? Seems to go faster as uh, we get older, too. 
Uh, it does. It does. Please don't remind me. <laughs> <laughs> so can you uh, summarize the book a little bit for, for people that may not um, know what it's sure. about yet? Sure. Well, if you know who Terrence McKenna was, and, uh, you know, he was a, a figure mostly in the, in the 80s and 90s. He was a, an outspoken advocate of psychedelics and, you know, at a time when that wasn't a particularly comfortable thing to be doing um he had a lot of uh, other odd ideas you might say funny ideas about time and the and the end of the world and the wave of time and all these theories and i guess he and i are kind of semi-famous for uh our trip to south america in 1971 when we went down there looking for exotic forms of DMT uh, and found it, but not exactly in the way that we thought we would were. We, uh, we, were, we went looking for this very obscure Witoto hallucinogen called Ukuhe, um, which we thought would be an orally active form of DMT. And uh, it was, but it wasn't that exciting when we finally did find it. What we did find down there to this place we went, La Chirera, which was the uh, ancestral home of the Witoto people, um, we went to this little mission village and we found that uh, the pastures around this village had been cleared. They brought in Cebu cattle, the white humpback type cattle, and it turns out that the dung of uh, Cebu is the preferred substrate for Salaspi cubensis, the big golden cap mushrooms so we we got there at a point where basically every cow pie had a huge cluster of beautiful mushrooms growing out of it and uh, we kind of thought we'd gone to heaven we (laughs) (laughs) we didn't know Uh, we had no idea what we were getting into we had had no experience with mushrooms before that you couldn't get them back in in those days they were they were a legend but here we were all of a sudden they were everywhere and we thought, well, um, gee, this is fun. We'll, we'll, we can have fun with these while we're waiting for the real mystery to show up. And of course, they turned out to be the real mystery themselves. Um, and, uh, you know, we were sort of, we started eating them rather, rather steadily. They'd be, we kind of incorporated them into our diet and, because uh, there wasn't a whole lot else to eat around there, you know, that we hadn't trucked in. So they made great soup. So why not, you know, and, and pretty soon things began to get very peculiar. <laughs> that's a, that's a great chapter in your book. It's, uh, I was, I was actually, laughing out loud to myself (laughs) yeah we were too we were doing a lot of laughing and and it was it was very much you know like i described it i mean we we didn't deliberately you know uh i mean we we didn't know what we were doing i mean if you've read the book and you read it that's obviously we were about as clueless as you could be you know but we uh we started um you know consuming these things and 
talking a lot and having very uh, interesting ideas and uh, you know and it didn't hurt that we were also completely we were completely loaded on great Santa Marta Santa Marta gold at the t at the same time and the mushroom uh, started to suggest uh, you know a lot of ideas about things we might do <laughs> if you will to uh make some spectacular things happen and uh you know it i mean looking back on it it seems so crazy when i describe what uh, you know what it was what what the notions that we had but you have to understand within the context of what was going on at the time it seemed totally it seemed to make sense, you know, it just seemed obvious. If we do this, then this will happen. And uh, and so, you know, being experimentalist, being steeped in Jungian psychology and alchemy and all these things, we understood it from that perspective, you know, that this was basically an alchemical operation. This was a kind of a psychic neurosurgery on our own brains and bodies and and some crazy stuff did happen and some crazy stuff did happen right and, and some of the things you guys talked about even ended up being true in the end right or at least somewhat accurate from a scientific perspective well somewhat accurate somewhat accurate from a scientific perspective i mean i mean we describe it as the experiment at la Chirera, but in no way does it could you really legitimately call it an experiment because experiments have to have controls and, and this was about as out of control <laughs> as it got you know so in that sense it was not an experiment it was yeah, more like yeah. a ritual or a manifestation or an incantation or something like that at la Chirera. but the results were spectacular uh in in the sense that we had a lot of uh you know we predicted um a number of things that should happen that were going to happen we were assured by the mushroom that they were going to happen <laughs> The fact that they were impossible and couldn't even happen in that in this space-time continuum didn't really matter because we understood, you know, I mean, we're here to we're here to completely rip the space-time continuum apart, and you know, overturn the laws of physics and escape from time, right? As well as, you know, become immortal and superconducting and all this stuff in in at the same time well so obviously none of that happened but it was like we painted ourselves into a certain conceptual corner i guess you could say and we reached a certain point where something had to happen you know when we finally did this thing and uh you know this this process of singing or screaming or yelling at the mushroom uh, and the idea that that was going to affect a biochemical uh, reaction through hyperspace <laughs> that was going to, you know, externalize our minds in a way that we could actually see them at the same time as we were going to be them. I mean, you know, we were going for the gold for sure. Um, and, uh, uh, none of that happened, but but when we finally did perform the experiment, something had to give, and what gave was that we were both uh, 
transported uh, into a very prolonged altered state that lasted about two weeks that was complementary uh, in a way to each other. I mean, our companions there who were not so sucked into all this were kind of appalled <laughs> at what was going on. But to us, it made perfect sense. You know, at the time, it made perfect sense. We understood each other. And our whole thing was that, you know, at the time, it was like, just everybody be calm, everybody back off. What, what We know this is weird. We know it's peculiar, but it's exactly what it's supposed to be at this time you know we we were we felt like it's all unfolding as the way it was the way it, it was supposed to uh you know and so with that mindset we were able to you know uh, kind of insist that uh, you know they not fly us out to the nearest mental health facility <laughs> you know which is definitely what they wanted to do you know i mean they 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 felt that it, and we thought no it's just better if we stick here and, and not that we had an option i mean you, you don't just call 911 in the middle of the amazon and get them to take you to the hospital so fortunately the process was able to play itself out and uh and I'm, you know, I'm very grateful for that. I, I, I was the one that was probably most uh, uh, dissociated from reality, I suppose you could say. Um, but Terrence, like I say, we were having these complementary simultaneous psychosis. So Terrence was hyper vigilant and very much focused on reality. And I was not concerned with this reality at all because I was long gone into the into the cosmos. And, and that went on for for 14 days. And each day I came together a little bit more and uh, and finally, at the end of 14 days, I was more or less stitched back together, you know, still pretty shaky, but but basically able to say my name and where I was and, <laughs> you know, things like that. Open a can of tuna fish, go to the bathroom. You know, I couldn't do any of those things when I was um, deep in the deep in the in the state, you know, um, so. You know, in some ways, uh, our whole lives ever since have been, in a, in a way, a reflection of those events, which is kind of not fair because, you know, I mean, I don't really want to be noted for, you know, or remembered for, you know, for my, my psychosis when I was 20 years old. I'd like to rem be remembered for some, some slightly more positive things than that. You know, not that this was not positive, but you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Of explaining to do. <laughs> but if if nothing else, I suppose it s sort of helped you along the way to becoming the man you are today. Well, in that sense, yeah, uh, I, I do think so. Uh, I mean, I, I have looked at, you know, I've considered what 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 is the model, or if you wanted to put a label on this experience what is it i mean you could say it was a simultaneous psychosis you know and that fits and there's even a term in psychiatry for that it's called folia do which mm -hmm. is the folly of two basically often siblings and uh so it could have been that I prefer to think of it as a shamanic initiation um, that puts a better spin on it 
for me at least and all of the all of the themes were there in in sense that you know shamanic initiation or shamanic uh experience involves a journey you know in this case to the edge of the universe and and back for me and it involves a transformation the shaman is torn to pieces and put back together again usually in a transformed in a transformed way and i was certainly transformed and uh yeah and i feel like i am um, i i don't claim to be a shaman i mean it's a shamanic initiation but i i'm not out there practicing shamanism uh but um i feel like uh, it was a great experience actually i wouldn't trade it for anything i i have no regrets and i feel that i was i'm a stronger person uh because this happened to me and i i didn't think about it this before but you guys could be responsible for really bringing mushrooms to our culture in the last you know 40 years or so right i mean i grew up in the 80s and uh it was pretty normal mushrooms were around quite a bit and i'm sure they still are um and and you guys were down there when they weren't really part of the north american culture they were not they were not part of north american culture at the time um you know, gringos even that far back were going down to South America and encountering these things and bringing them, bringing back stories, but not really bringing back mushrooms and not really, and no one really knew how to grow them. Mm -hmm. So when we, after La Chirera, we brought back spore prints, of course, and we, and we didn't know how to grow them. But that became like a major goal for mm -hmm. us was to figure <laughs> out how to grow them, you know, uh, not only for the mercenary aspects of it, but more importantly, so that other people could grow them so that we could verify so that we could share the experience and get get some consensus was you know, was this crazy stuff that we were experiencing, was it just us or is it something that other people, you know, um, experience? And as it turns out, it is not just us. A lot of people have these similar, mm -hmm. you know, crazy, more science fiction-ish tinged experiences. I, I, I assume you guys have done mushrooms on occasion or oh yeah i've been known yeah. to partake from time to time yeah okay yeah so. i mean it's been a while and, and the problem with the way i i've done them in the past or darren is, is a lot of times there's alcohol involved and it was kind of more of a party atmosphere there wasn't enough reverence around it mm -hmm. but i mean i remember picking liberty bells out of the fields like we would you know get teach each other how to find the the proper mushrooms in the cow fields Mm -hmm. And a lot of talking and laughing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they were profound experiences, but yeah, yeah. I, I would have rather done them in a different way, probably. Well, you know, there's nothing wrong with having a good time, and and certainly the mushrooms they help. They are very good to have a good time. I mean, at low doses, what you know, or relatively low doses, yeah. and and they're non-threatening. They're rather easy to handle, and they certainly do you know make you laugh and all that what what impresses me though is that people you know i think i think the way that they are used largely in society is recreationally that way yeah. and a lot of people can go on for a long time and never really take a high dose and never really suspect that just around the corner you know is oblivion just, 
is oblivion. It is a world that is completely transformed and utterly bizarre. And, and you know, they can use them recreationally. And if they never tangle with that, you know, so, so Terrence was, he was right, I think, in the sense that he used to say, well, you know, you take a heroic dose, you take a <laughs> five-gram dose in, in the darkness, yeah. you know, and if you're not convinced by that, nothing will convince yeah. you. Darren and I just talked about that, actually. We, we talked about how, just exactly what you said, how recreationally in the past we may have taken uh, smaller doses and that to do it properly, uh, you would want to take that that. I wouldn't call it heroic. That's a bit brave, but at least a proper dose. Yeah, yeah, uh, enough to enough to so that what is happening is so that your attention is on the experience. Yeah, and it's not just something to make you feel you know giggly Giddy, while yeah. you're doing whatever you're doing, watching television or or yeah. you know, whatever. I mean, recording a podcast. Yeah, or doing a podcast or any <laughs> of that. There's there's nothing. Uh, wrong with those things but if you want to if you want to approach it as a teacher which we did at La Chirure, it was very much presented itself as you know i'm the teacher and i'm i'm you know pay attention because i'm downloading you know some pretty important gnosis uh and so you know we respected it and uh and still do i i don't uh I take mushrooms rarely, uh, but I do take it, and and I usually take it in a way that you know I'm I'm there to pay attention to what it has to tell me because you know the experiences are infrequent enough that I don't want to I don't want to waste the opportunities. Um, um, but but yeah, we had you know if if you know if we had a mission or if we if we actually brought back something from La Chirera that was that was like what we said it was going to be like you know the secret or something that would transform society that was it it was not not a secret at all it was just a a very simple method to grow these mushrooms but it- Isn't it funny how mushrooms seem to have that draw to them? You know, like a lot of people I know that take mushrooms, it's like a camping thing. You know what I mean? When you're out in the bush and and away from from the city. Well, that's a good way to do it. Yeah, it's almost like the mushrooms instinctively try and and do that because it always seems to be a camping thing. Right. A camping or, you know, either lock yourself in your basement and turn out the lights or or go camping or or do it somewhere where you don't have to interact with people who are not in that place because, you know, you just don't want to have to explain yourself and they wouldn't understand. You know, so so it's better to do it in, in the wilderness. And uh, and that's. That's usually how I do it too, um, but I think, uh, you know, in in some ways, you know, we made all sorts of predictions about how, you know, what we were attempting to do this this biophysical experiment was going to end history and transform society and transform us and all that, and like I say in the book, we were right, but not in the ways that we thought, yeah. you know. And, and the mushrooms really have, I think, changed society, and and uh, and I'm glad they have. I mean, I'm, you know, if Terence and I made any contribution to 
to the 20th century. I think that was it, and that was the one that we came at. You know, we did it under pseudonyms originally. We didn't even admit that we'd written that book. But, you know, it put into the hands of a lot of people, a lot of, I suspect, you know, geeky seventh graders, probably, you know, uh, who like to putter around and do science projects and that kind of thing. Suddenly they had the tools to grow these mushrooms and then they had the experiences and then, you know, gradually the consensus spread through societies that these things are really, really interesting and the uh, and the worlds that they open up are very, very peculiar and strange and uh, and worth exploring. Having said that, though, you probably have to admit that ayahuasca and DMT wouldn't be where it is today either uh, if it wasn't for you guys. Probably so. Probably so. Ayahuasca was a later thing. Yeah. I mean, I would, I guess we can take credit for that or blame. Or <laughs> no, that's okay. Which side of the controversy you're on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've just been meeting people recently who have been going, uh, you know, to Peru and have been there for healing journeys. I mean, it just seems to be coming up all over the place and in kind of the spiritual community. Right. It is. The whole uh, ayahuasca ayahuasca tourism thing is is going strong and you know and it's been interesting to watch it i mean when i went to peru for the first time in 1981 i went to iquitos uh, among other places there i was doing graduate work at the university of british columbia at the time and uh, it was a quite a different place than it is today i mean today it's it's the wild west you know and it's ayahuasca tourism that's yeah, yeah. that's done it have you been down there no no well, it's uh, it's pretty crazy <laughs> yeah i plan to go at at some point in my life for sure um I de- it's an experience I definitely want to have. I'm just not sure that I'm I'm ready for it yet. I'm gonna I'm gonna do a couple more mushroom uh, mushroom runs before I attempt that one. Right, right. Well, there's quite a quite an active ayahuasca community in Vancouver too. Hmm. Wow, that's not far. How would you? So you went to school in both uh, Canada and the states. Uh, what what were uh, like? Which was there one that uh, you preferred over the other? I know in the book you, you you mentioned how much you liked our healthcare system. I liked your healthcare system. I still do. <laughs> Trying to figure out how to get back up there because I'm getting old now and I'm going to need it. You know, uh, actually, I like Canada a lot. I I, I wish I could. You know, I mean, I, I did. I went to school. I grew up in Colorado and I went to school at the University of Colorado for the first four years of my education. And then I was off for a couple of years. And then I went for a master's degree at the University of Hawaii, and which was a fantastic experience. And then I went to UBC and, and studied. That's where I did my thesis work on ayahuasca and uh you know this this Witoto drug that that we had gone after ten years previously re-emerged, and I that became my my thesis was basically a comparative study between ayahuasca and ukuhe, um, this Witoto drug. The idea being completely different uh, botanical ingredients, but similar chemistries and similar pharmacologies. Um, so. Um, 
I uh, I love I love being in Canada, and I met my wife there, and I still have many friends there. I went back to Canada recently. I got a job uh, at uh, BC Institute of Technology in 2006. Uh, I went up there and I lived there two years with the thinking that I was this was going to be the you know the, the sort of beginning of relocating. Uh, but for one reason or another, I didn't really care for that job and so I came back to Minnesota and now we're here we are but we may move up there and the question is how to afford it <laughs> you know that's it's an, I mean, vancouver's an expensive place as you know yeah 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 Cal- calgary's no better nowadays either yeah it's still a little cheaper here yeah yeah but people are moving into calgary now yeah 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 these days canada is a it, it's an immensely reasonable country, you know. People say that the people, the Canadian people, are reserved, and I just, I don't agree with that. I mean, I, I find Canadian people very friendly, but I find, I think Americans are a little bit too excitable, you know. <laughs> and that's why we have the problems that we have because, you know, we're we're. I mean, Americans are an emotional people. Yeah. Yeah, you know, especially if you're hanging out in BC, because half we're we're all half baked over there, so everyone's in an easy going. Everyone's easy going. Right, right. But that's a good thing. You're you're doing a good thing by exporting a little of that to the states, because God knows we need it. You know, we we need as a people, we need to calm down. <laughs> you know, I, you're probably too young, or maybe you never wrote, maybe maybe you never. Uh, read him, but he, he, there was a columnist um, who wrote for McLean's magazine um, probably, I guess, 20 years ago or so, named Al, Alan Fotheringham. Have you ever heard of him? No. no. No, probably not. Well, he's long gone, I'm sure. But he used to write about the excitable states of America. <laughs> I thought that was very apt. That's exactly what we are. <laughs> well, yeah, everyone's a little excited right now over over some uh, well nonsense. I mean, when someone gets killed, it's never nonsense, I suppose, but it still seems a little bit carried away. This George Zimmerman thing? Yeah, I haven't heard much of it, just what I see on Twitter, but uh, it does seem like uh, people are getting pretty excitable over, or, over any other case. I mean, there's cases like that every day that no one really gives a shit about. That's true. That's true. But it, it it got attention. It got publicity. I mean, you know, it's. I mean, it, it's race. I mean, the 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 issues that we have to deal with in our country, maybe in Canada, but not to the same extent, are, are you know, race and guns. You know, that's the problem. Canada seems to be a country that's governed by reason. And if you can make a reasoned argument, you know, then the Canadian people say, oh, okay, I can see the point. All right. Gay marriage, no problem. You know, legalize weed for medical use, no problem. You know, control guns. All of these things are like hot button issues here. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, it's because, you know, it's because people don't think thinking is not even respected you know it's it's like it's it's almost you know what are you an elite you you dare to 
actually think and use reason. I mean, this is, you know, Americans are very much about, you know, don't confuse me with facts. My mind is already made up. And uh, that poisons the dialogue, I think, in a lot of ways. That's actually a, quite a well-known quote from a, one of my favorite ufologists, Stanton Friedman. <laughs> oh, yeah? Yeah. So talking about the, the U.S. there and the, and the culture down there, since the 60s and since you've been into this whole subject, it's, it's, it's kind of uh, polarized in a way. Like it's more open in society than ever probably, yet there's more of a, a federal clampdown on it. You know, like you were, in your book, you were talking about how you were bringing stuff uh, <clears throat> up north in the 80s i think it was and you're saying how you know nowadays you could never get away with it so it's kind of strange to me that it's harder than ever and yet it's more prevalent through society well yeah i mean i i guess that just goes to show you that you know the harder you push the more you push the harder you push back yeah yeah you know and, and people don't like to be pushed and uh and that's just the way it is, you know. I mean, it, it it is. I mean, it is harder than ever, but it's at the same time it's looser than ever. I mean, yeah. It's, do you think we're on the verge? It almost seems like we're on the verge of a breakthrough. You know, like in our lifetime, we're going to see some big changes start to happen. Well, yeah, I think I think that's true. I mean, I mean, uh, on many levels. Um, I mean, I'm not sure. Are you talking about the drug laws specifically? Or? Well, no, yeah, no, not even just specifically. But that's that seems like it's going to be part of it. But even like, I mean, with technology advancing the way it is, it just seems like I don't know. It just seems like it always seems like there's something around the corner. Like the house of cards is going to tumble, kind of. Well, it, yeah, it seems so. I mean, it seems the House of Tards is going, House of Cards is going to tumble, or we're going to somehow get through this bottleneck, and there's going to be some kind of a breakthrough, like you say, a technological breakthrough, maybe, or a, a one would hope for a spiritual breakthrough. Yeah. There's got to be a change in global consciousness is what's going to happen because the current model is not going to work. It, it's not sustainable. Uh, you know, we have to, and I think this is where psychedelics are actually important uh, in as, as catalyst in this process, especially, I would say, ayahuasca, even maybe more than mushrooms because of the way that ayahuasca has moved from its ancestral home into the wider world and uh, it's almost as though you know i mean it if you if if you want to attribute will to it it's almost as if it wants to reach out to the human species and transmit a message which is basically wake up you monkeys smarten up you know yeah smarten up you're screwing things up and, and I think the message that ayahuasca brings to people that experience it is, is this realization that we've got to change our relationship to nature. You know, we've got to realize that nature, you know, it, it, we, we have to, we don't own it. It's not, not there to be owned or depleted or exploited. Rented. 
it, yeah, or, or nurtured, actually. I mean, and this is what indigenous people do, but as in global culture, we have a hard time sort of getting used to this idea because our, you know, capitalism is, is based on the notion of endless consumption and endless expansion. That's not going to work, you know, it's not, you know, and if we don't wake up, then nature has a way of, uh, you know, it gets rid of species that that soil uh, their own nest. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I, that's what I always say is that uh, human beings can never ruin the earth. It'll fucking get rid of us long before it comes to that. Yeah, I believe it will. I Let, believe it will. life will be just fine beyond humanity, no matter what. No matter, there's nothing we can really do. Life will find a way. It'll just replace us with something better. Yeah, it will. But since we're the problematic species, you know, I'd kind of like to stick around for a while. And uh, and you know, we could do it if we would just undergo some. You know, if we would just realize some very basic things. And and I think that's what the. You know, that's largely the power of these plants is to, you know, they are teaching tools. I mean, I, I call them teacher plants and a lot of indigenous people think of them that way, too. You know, they're here to teach humanity. They always have. And they're continuing to do so, but they're getting a little desperate, right? Because we're such we're so we're so thick headed that we're not getting the message. What was the quote you heard? Something about uh, you monkeys think you know everything. You monkeys only think you're running things. <laughs> yeah. Was that uh, when you got to experience photosynthesis? Yes, that was it. That was a good story. Yeah. No, yep. I agree. I, I cherish the experience, and, and that was the take-home lesson. And a lot of people come away with that lesson. Mm -hmm. And so partly, you know, I think, I think since we're, you know, I mean, I guess you and I and our, our cohorts and, and the psychedelic community as a group represents uh, hopefully a segment of humanity that's a little more conscious. And... I see it as our mission, in a way, to to help the rest of humanity wake up. Not not like we know everything. I mean, in fact, the main lesson that you, you know, the first lesson that ayahuasca or any of these things teach you is you, you don't. don't know anything. Yeah. You don't know shit, right? Yeah, and you need to be willing to learn. You have to be willing to learn. But once you've made that realization, then you can you know, with all humility, go out and share that knowledge with your peers, your family, your friends, and spread it, you know. And and this is a very botanical and uh, mycelial thing. I mean, that's what plants like to do. They like to move around and, and spread, and mushrooms, the same thing. We're just, we're just aiding that process. But at the same time, we, you know, we've got this symbiosis going with these things where these, in some ways, you know, superior beings, even though they don't talk to us in the way that you and I are talking, but I think they do have a certain wisdom and they want to they want to put that out there and they want to work with people who are willing to, you know, help them get their their message across. 
and you know at the same time it's it's i mean it's a race you know are we going to get there before everything falls apart i mean that's the question actually i wanted to ask you about the um the sound like you you mentioned uh in this talk just recently you're you were singing to the mushroom and and it it didn't sound it sounded a little more scientific in your book and it was quite fascinating reading that part about the uh the electron i think it was about the electron spin frequency or something like that and it reminds me of you know some of the meditations that they have now like for example the monroe institute talking about you know resonant tuning right and you can get in there and feel that your uh you know your 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 frequency is is resonating with whatever one you're listening to mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah i mean uh, there's a whole interesting area kind of that's springing up around around psychedelics are kind of tangential to psychedelics which is this this whole sound healing yeah. uh, business that's going on um i made the i made the friendship of a fellow in new york alexandre tennis who's uh, an ethnomusicologist and a very well-educated person when it comes to all of these different musical traditions, especially the atonal music and Tibetan bowls mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. all that stuff. And so he's developed these methods to, uh, you know, he, he does groups of 40 or 50 people at a time using sound mm -hmm. to basically transport them into altered states. And, uh, it, it works. I mean, people come out of those experiences absolutely transformed. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So sound has a lot, a lot to do with this. One of the one of the most profound experiences I had was in a in a shamanic sound and breath journey, and and uh, they were using all sorts of ancient instruments, like pumped through you know this bow sound system, and you're lying on the ground, and they're doing kind of uh hands-on healing and crystal work and the sounds and and i mean i had all my chakras were vibrating to the point where i could you know i could feel them open up one by one and and i was completely you know stone cold sober at the time i mean it was probably one of my most profound spiritual experiences yet yeah yeah and and so it so there is a lot to this sound modulation because as you say you could you actually your chakras actually do vibrate and you can feel these atonal resonances working on a very physical level and uh you know when alexander has has i've had his treatment but he also has told me stories about people he's treated who are you know seriously depressed or sometimes physically ill or addicted people with cancer this kind of thing and basically they're cured um so there is a lot and of course when you do them in conjunction with the medicines then it's even more so it's even more powerful and uh he, he's got some very interesting ideas he, he talks about how the uh you know uh, the catholic church uh which is responsible for most of what's wrong with Western civilization. <laughs> I can agree with that. On that, but but one of the things that they did was they 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 introduced the the uh, the conventional 
tonal scale, equal interviews, intervals in an octave, right? And the the atonal scale, the intervals are are different, and I don't totally understand how they are. But by introducing equal interviews in intervals into the into the musical octave, it was a deliberate af- attempt to basically remove the um, essentially the numinous the numinous quality of Western music. It was a, it was an attempt to defuse it or defang it to remove its transporting qualities and turn it into essentially a caricature of itself. While of course they retained the real music for themselves, which was the the gongs, right? The bells, which are a bell is a circular gong, and uh, they're they have the overtones and also uh, plain song, which is the Gregorian chant. So that stayed within the church and they foisted the, uh, uh, this other music, which was the basis of classical music onto the rest of the West. And it was basically a way of, uh, you know, sort of, um, I guess, defanging it in a certain way, taking away its emotional um, resonance, literally. Have you ever, uh, speaking of just on the subject of music and, uh, and uh, hallucinogens, have you ever, have you ever met uh, Dr. Stanley Krippner or worked with him or talked to him? Or? Uh, I met, yes, I know Stanley. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we had, we had him on the show uh, a few weeks ago, actually. It was a great conversation. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, he's been at this for a long time. You know, you should get Alex on to come on the show. I mean, he is he's amazing. I think uh, you'd, he'd give you a great interview. He, he is so such a scholar. You know, he just knows this stuff and uh, he's very humble, but very interesting guy. One thing I absolutely loved about the book is how it almost read like a novel to me, like uh, with the introduction and it, like you, you get to know the characters and uh, it was just, it was really well written. I like how it just kind of engulfed, engrossed you. Well, thank you for that. I have to tell you, honestly, uh, it's good to have a good editor. I mean, I, I was blessed. I had one of the best editors you can imagine and not because of anything I did particularly, but just, just lucky. Uh, actually a good friend of mine, um, 
who is the designer for the book. He's a graphics artist. He designed the book, and he worked with a fellow uh, at Utney Reader. I don't know if that means anything to you. It was a pretty well-recognized uh, kind of mm, literary current events kind of magazine in the States here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my editor was the editor-in-chief of that magazine. So he was very gifted. And it's great, and he deserves a lot of the uh, he deserves a lot of the credit. I'm trying to send you a file here. I don't know if this. Is oh right. yeah, I got it here. You got it. Okay. Yeah, well, that's Alexandre. He's coming to a place close to where I live in in uh, August and, mm. and doing a workshop. Mm. Um, speaking of your book and and. Uh you seem to be quite quite humble through it right you're really willing to uh to talk about your your mistakes or where you think you may have done things wrong and i mean was that was that tough to put yourself out there like that or or was it more cathartic like after after it's been out there now a bit how has your feelings changed or have they well, it hasn't really changed. I I don't know. Um, people say, well, you know, you shouldn't have talked about all this personal stuff and so on. And But I figure, well, it's a memoir, right? And, yeah. And you write about what you remember, um, you know, especially at my, my age, you write what you remember. I mean, what I when I think about the book and I look back on it, uh, I'm amazed how much I left out of it, you know, that that should have gone in that I just plum didn't remember or didn't remember to write about. Um, but what was there was uh, was the highlights. And I'm not uh, I mean, we all, you know, we, we we're all sort of exploring and I think we all make mistakes. And, and uh, you know, I, I never what I never fooled myself that I knew what I was doing, <laughs> you know, and, or maybe I did. I mean, I mean, it, it's, it's easier to fool oneself than other people, but you know, I, I, uh, I don't know. It just seemed like the natural thing to write about. And it was, it was cathartic, uh, in a certain sense, it was good to write about that and to sort of, you know, I mean, uh, what, what drove me, uh, all my life has been curiosity and, you know, passion for the peculiar and, uh, I'm not ashamed of it. No, I, I respect that about, about that, um, how you're willing to do that. I mean, a lot of people wouldn't, uh, you know, acknowledge their, you know, their default defects and stuff like that. Are you going to do another one then? I mean, are you thinking about it? Well, am I going to do another memoir? <laughs> yeah. <right>? Another book <laughs> with all the stuff you left out. Yeah, no, I, th- well, a number of people need to die first <laughs> before I can do that. <laughs> you know, a number of, you know, I mean, not right away. I, I would like to, write some more um i mean again the problem is always time uh but um you know and and getting the time but i i don't know i'd like to write fiction actually uh or uh or something factual but something that has nothing to do with with me as a person or even with Terrence. I'm, I'm not sure what that would be, but I'd like to write more. If I'm going to write another memoir, 
Well, you can only write one, really, and yeah. then you can write an update to it. Yeah. But uh, not enough time has passed. Uh, you know, I, I wanted to get this one out there by the end of 2012 because 2012 was so important to both of us, and it just seemed like a good target date. And so I did that, and it's been very well received. You know, most people have really, uh, really responded well to it. Yeah, I recommend everyone uh, picks up a copy. We've actually got a link to your to the book on Amazon on the Grimerica page, so people can grab it right through there. Ask can can you order it in Canada from that site? Um, I yeah, uh, you know what? I think I'm only linked to the Amazon.com because I had to get it off of eBay actually. Yeah, I, people have a hard time, but let people know if you go to if you go to my site, if you go to brotherhoodofthescreamingabyss.com, you can order it. And I get a lot of orders from Canada from there. And yeah, that's, that's how I got it. That's because you can't get it from Amazon.com. Yeah, yeah Graham, got, Graham got it from your website. That's right. He got a signed copy. Yeah. Yeah, well, right. And if you order it from my website, I can sign it for you. That's right. But, but we're coming to Minnesota in uh, October, so hopefully we can just bump into you then and get it signed. Absolutely. When are you coming? Uh, I think we're there October 17th to the 22nd for the Paradigm Symposium. We were there last year as well. It's a pretty. It was at the uh, Doubletree Hilton. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, Eric Von Daniken was there and a bunch of the guys from Ancient Aliens. And Eric Von Daniken? No kidding. This, my God, is he alive? Well, I guess he's alive. <laughs> yeah, he's alive. He was a little grumpy, but... <laughs> well, he's always been a little grumpy, I think. <laughs> wow. I'll uh, keep me posted on that. I might show up for oh, that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll like send it, you the yeah. link for sure. Yeah, you could probably sell a lot of books there. Oh, well, yeah, I, yeah. They, this has not escaped my attention. <laughs> yeah, I'm actually, we're actually uh, uh, friends with the people who put it on. So uh, perhaps we can talk a little after the chat and, and uh, we can probably get you in touch with the right people. Are you, uh, are you, uh, are you, do you know if Graham Hancock is coming to that? Uh, no, I don't think so. No. Okay. Because you know who he is, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We know. We follow him pretty closely. Yeah, I got to know him pretty well. We toured Australia last fall, and uh, we've been down to Brazil together drinking ayahuasca and so on. He's a great guy. I really like him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I love his stuff. I, I didn't really know that much about what he was writing about, but then I started to read it, and I'm thinking, you know, he's really on to something here yeah, yeah. Um, I've been trying to get him to come to Minnesota and do an event so maybe this would be a thing yeah anyway send yeah send me some information about that I will for sure uh, one thing you we've been talking about a little tonight and you talk about the in the book is uh, is it Ungian psychology Jungian 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 after Jung uh, Carl Carl Jung J-U-N-G but he was German, so you call it Jung? Jung? Y Jung? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, well, could you give uh, give listeners just a background of what exactly that, that outlines? Sure, a little bit. Um, well, Jung, Carl Jung, was a student of Freud, right? And so he 
was in the early part of the 20th century and and this was the very early days of psychoanalysis and psychology and all this uh but Jung and Freud had uh, a break. They had a dispute because Freud had a theory about, you know, basically that, it, that uh, you know, mental illness and all this, it was all about sex and, you know, these deeply buried sexual... Everything uh, was about sex, I think, with Freud. Everything was about sex. And, and Jung said, no, that's baloney. It's really about the unconscious. And Jung was the was into the what they called depth psychology he was into the psychology of the unconscious and he had this notion he had many many interesting ideas about alchemy and about ufos and about you know all of the things that actually terence and i were preoccupied with when we were younger uh jung has some very interesting theories about ufos if you haven't read him read uh, the red read, book well the red book the red book is more recent but he's he he wrote um you know the collected works of cg jung is like 25 thick volumes mm -hmm. uh, of all of his ideas fascinating one of which one of the volumes is psychology and alchemy and if you're into alchemy if you or even if you're not if you want to understand what alchemy was really about you have to read this book terence told me uh you know back in the day when we were both young he said uh you know don't take lsd until you've read psychology and alchemy mm -hmm. right of course i completely ignored that <laughs> but, but i could see how i could see what he meant you know i would have appreciated it so much more if i had read it uh it's a it's a fascinating book and if you just uh if you just go on wikipedia and, and look up cg young it lists all his collected works and uh just an amazing body of work. Now, the Red Book, which I have to, I'm a little embarrassed to say, I haven't read it, I have it, but uh, the Red Book is something that he produced before he started writing his collected works, and, and it came out of a period of his life when he was apparently immersed in altered states all the time. I don't think he took psychedelics, but I don't think he needed them. I mm -hmm. think he was in this place a good deal of the time. He was very attuned to dreams and just the, you know, just his own unconscious, very much the inner life looking in. And he wrote all this down. Have you seen the Red Book? I've, I've got it and I haven't read the whole thing yet. But yeah, you can get it for free online, actually. Oh, really? Yeah. Hurry up because I want to read that shit mm -hmm. now. <laughs> it, it is pretty interesting, wouldn't you say? Yeah. Hey, you know, while we're on that subject, I actually have a uh, a tweet here from uh, a listener, Mark Fairchild. He had a question he wanted us to ask you, actually. Okay. And it's, um, after hearing about DMT and altered states of mind throughout the study of consciousness, I feel like in order for me to have a spiritual journey or meet God... I need to alter my brain with these drugs. I need that aha moment to realize what I'm praying to and for. Any ideas about how one can meet the higher power that so many say they meet when using psychedelics besides using the drugs? How you can meet it without using the drugs? Uh, yes. 
a well, <laughs> it kind of begs the question, doesn't it? I mean, you know, the DMT experiences is the own is is what it is. I think there are many ways to to get to altered states, to get to transcendent places. You know, and and people say, well, you know, there there's only one top to the mountain, and you can get to the top by many pathways. And to a certain extent, that's true. I think that's true. Uh, but, you know, I guess the experience that you have getting to the top is going to be different depending on what path you take. Um, I, I mean, I don't think that meditation can simulate a psychedelic experience. I think it's different. And I think psychedelic experiences to a certain extent are similar to meditation, but they're not identical. So, you know, uh, it, it's a matter of whatever works, you know, whatever method works. Certainly, you know, yoga, altered states, uh, shamanism, which you don't have to take drugs to practice shamanism. Um, there are different ways, ways to get there. But but it but it's also not that hard to find these medicines these days. No, they grow in BC. So yes, they grow everywhere. So actually, that was a question I had. Is so like the mushrooms that are growing in BC and Newfoundland? Uh, how do they differ from what you'd what what you'd find in say La Chirera? Well, the mushrooms in La Chirera were Salicybe cubensis. So those are the pan-tropical golden cap mushrooms. They're worldwide, and they basically show up in pastures under the right condition anywhere from South America to, to Thailand, probably India, undoubtedly Africa. They're just global. In, but in northern climes, the, the little liberty caps that you were talking about, the semi-lanciata, those seem to be the the temperate equivalent of the of the cubensis they're much smaller and they're much stronger you know by weight i mean i mean yeah. if you if you take 5 grams of cubensis maybe 2 grams of of the liberty caps dry that's a whole lot of oh really so i i should i was talking about eating a, a, an eighth maybe that's too much an eighth of a gram no an eighth of a an ounce Oh, yeah, I'd say that's way too much. Oh, good, good thing we brought that up. Because I've had too much before. And, I, mean, uh, I mean, not that, not that you know, I mean, there, the toxicity isn't the problem. You'd have to eat kilograms of this stuff to get have any issue with toxicity. You but, can find the dark side, though. Oh, yes, but at, at a higher dose, yeah. I mean, your mind will melt far sooner than your brain will melt. You yeah, know? like they've got a power to them. Like I've had, uh, I've had experiences both before on uh, LSD and, um, and psilocybin where I've had lots of good experiences and then I've had a lot of, you know, it's almost like some, I, I've always equa equated it to having too much, but it could be something different. I've also thought about, you know, mindset or w different things like that. But I've, I've definitely had the drugs turn on me before where they can make you paranoid of your friends and think everybody's out to get you. 
Oh, yeah, they totally can. And that's all about set and setting, right? Leary and Metzner and the rest of them went on about set and setting, but they have it right. You know, the kind of experience you have is going to be critically important on the setting. That's obvious. You know, I mean, if you so you want to plan where you do it carefully and the circumstances and you want to set it up so that nobody's going to bother you you know as you said go camping or just get someplace where you're out of the you're not going to be noticed by ordinary people you know you don't want to frighten the children and you know startle the horses in the street and this kind of thing you know so pay attention to your setting but then the set, the set is in some ways more important and the set is what you bring to it, you know, who you are, everything you've ever learned, what your intention is, what you hope to learn, what you, you know, essentially the set is the, you know, something that we carry with us all the time. I mean, we are our own set, right? But the combination of set and setting, so, so the set is to... A lot of it has to do with your your attitude in some ways, you know. And I think I think the best thing to do in in terms of approaching it with a good set is to just, in some ways, be open to whatever happens. You know, don't resist it. You have to remind yourself that this is a drug it's going to pass no matter how weird it gets it'll pass in a few hours and lay back and enjoy it you know and just let it let it happen and you know if with ayahuasca they say you know if the if the if the anaconda comes if the if the snake comes and wants to swallow you jump into its mouth you know this is this is it's not a threatening entity it's actually a, a friendly entity but it doesn't look very friendly you know so that's the whole thing it's just careful planning which is which is one thing that that you know ritual accomplishes i mean that's all this shamanic stuff is really is creating a sacred space or not even sacred but a special space and time where this can go on you know and so you're you're putting a protective bubble around the experience and you're giving yourself permission to within that protective bubble whatever happens just let it tear loose because you're protected and um you know, and I, and I think under those circumstances, you can get through about anything. But, you know, that said, I mean, you're right. It, and the mushrooms especially, I would say, I would say more than ayahuasca, the mushrooms can be very tricky. You know, don't trust them. You know, what, what they're saying to you is not necessarily the, the you know, not necessarily truth. <laughs> Have you heard the r recent studies about how uh, small doses of LSD might be uh, more effective or produce a, a, a different state, I guess, almost a better state than, than a large dose? Well, yeah, I have. I mean, I've, I've heard these, uh, the, these experiments with uh, microdosing. They're, they're talking about microdosing, taking very small amounts of LSD or something like that on a daily basis, basically as a cognition enhancer. Um, and it does work that way. 
but I don't know. I'm skeptical. I mean, I mean, I'm sure that can be useful. But is this, uh, but is this an excuse for people who won't bite the bullet and just take a goddamn heroic dose? And, and <laughs> I mean, isn't that what we're trying to do here? Yeah. Well, I was able to relate to it because I've noticed a few times in the past that I've taken a, a large dose of LSD. I've noticed, you know, after you'd like trip balls for like ten or twelve hours. You notice, I've always noticed, you know, uh, during the come down, there's like a brief period of an hour or two that I, I almost feel more productive and enhanced almost. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like I can be, I'm multitasking and I am doing it, you know, it seems it to me easier than ever before. And, but it's hard to say for sure because I'm, I'm coming off of, you know, what's been absolute craziness for the last 10 hours. Right, right. So the question is, if you hadn't done that, if you had just taken the smaller dose, would you have been, would you have gotten to that? Just to that place and no just further. Just to that place. Or would you have to go through that first? And then as you're coming out of it and reintegrating, you feel all this stuff coming together and all this creative energy kind of coalescing. So then you're able to, you know, write that song or do whatever it is you do to, you know, creatively express. Um, but without going through that cathartic transformational experience, maybe you wouldn't benefit. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I have not microdosed myself. Um, I mean, I, but I have friends who do and they say it helps or whatever that means. It, you know, helps them think more clearly or whatever it's like natural Prozac. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of. Mm -hmm. So uh, kind of, you probably already answered this in, in, in a certain way, but you know, although psychedelics aren't necessarily addictive. Um, I mean, I, I have met some people that have been kind of addicted to LSD. And I mean, I've had my own issues with drugs in the past. I haven't had uh, drugs or alcohol for over five years and I don't, I don't plan on, on changing anything. It's life is, is really good the way it's going right now. But, um, you know, it kind of goes back to that, our, our Mark, Mark's tweet question there about, about sort of reaching a higher power without drugs. Um, and you know, now we have all these, uh, we have more overdoses on prescription drugs than illegal drugs in the States. You know, all the, all the drug categorization is, is messed up. Like, so I, what, what advice do you have for addicts or, or for people that are contemplating this that have had sort of issues in the past? Well, I don't think, I mean, psychedelics are not addictive, right? I mean, they are, if anything, anti-addictive. That's, that's why they can be used to treat addictions, mm -hmm. you know, and usually, I mean, you have to, with something like LSD or psilocybin or, or ayahuasca, you know, I mean, addiction is a word that's loosely used, right? I mean, you can like something. I like dark chocolate. You might even say I'm addicted to dark chocolate. But if somebody takes it away, I'm not going to, you know, I mean, I'm going to be disappointed, but I won't. I don't, I'm not going to have a big physiological reaction to it. So addiction is a is a 
is a word that you know it's pretty it's, vague it's pretty vague right um uh, i know people who like psychedelics and take them pretty frequently but the thing is with psychedelics they they induce tolerance very quickly most of them you know so if you take lsd three or four times in a row on four successive days same dose on the fourth day not much is going to happen yeah yeah that's a double up rule yeah exactly which is another reason i want i question this micro dosing idea i think people may be kidding themselves after the first few days they're not even feeling it uh you know so um i, I mean i mean i tell people if you know if, if you're contemplating taking psilocybin or ayahuasca or any of these things and you don't have butterflies in your stomach you're not paying attention you know mm -hmm. i mean every, every time i do it and i've been doing it a long time there's always a little bit of nervousness and mm -hmm. i think that's good you mm -hmm. know that, that's respect for what you're about to embark on it's like gosh i've done i mean i'm not saying i've done it but people who say i've done you know ayahuasca a thousand times but it's the thousand and first time that might surprise you <laughs> you know so it's good to approach these things with respect at the same time be open to what's going to happen mm -hmm. and uh um you know there but i i think that they you know when it comes to using these substances to treat addiction which there's you know an accumulating and rapidly expanding body of evidence to show that you can treat it for uh, alcoholism and uh, even opiate addiction uh there's currently uh an an sd fda approved clinical trial uh, using psilocybin at johns hopkins for smoking mm -hmm. that so far a hundred percent of the subjects have quit smoking and these are these were like lifetime three pack a day smokers it won't make me quit smoking though like what if i don't want to quit smoking grass if i do ayahuasca it's not going to make me quit is it it's not going to make you that's the thing exactly that's my point is that all it does is it gives you a chance to step back from the behavior and reassess mm -hmm. Right. And you can, at that point, make a choice. Right. So like I told Roland Griffiths, he's the, the guy that at Johns Hopkins that was supervising this study. I, I said, you know, if my, if mushrooms made you quit smoking, I would have quit 20 years ago. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> Graham Hancock's story about his uh, his green bitch addiction and and how ayahuasca got him off that is pretty amazing yeah yeah and that's that's the thing all it does is let you step back from this this habitual behavior and and make a choice at that moment in that moment of freedom and uh and you don't have to go back to it and that's exactly what had these guys in the psilocybin smoking study did because they don't just take psilocybin and quit smoking they go through a long series of preparation preparative therapy sessions and so on and these are people who were highly motivated to quit smoking they've been smoking for years they want to stop they just can't so then they take the psilocybin and suddenly 
And interestingly, they, they often smoke during the psilocybin session. So then, but they go into it with this mindset that they want to quit. So then the cigarette becomes like this horrible, evil, disgusting thing, you know, and they can't even believe that they're, that they're smoking it. <laughs> and it's, it's really an aversion reaction. And so then they come out of it and they say, why would I ever do that again? You know, and it sticks. That's the interesting thing. It sticks. Now, of course, the the, the psychedelic that's most um, you know most uh, sort of spectacular for this is ibogaine, which is the from the African shrub. Oh, I never uh, even heard of that shit. Ibogaine is is got a lot of attention because it it seriously and abruptly interrupts addiction to uh, heroin and other narcotics and uh, it absolutely works it uh, it interrupts the craving because the craving is what drives the addiction especially for a drug like that so it it's not a pure psychedelic. There are other neurochemical pathways involved, but it, it basically interrupts that craving for about 10 days. So you don't feel that you have to shoot uh, up every half hour or so. You're free of that. It gives you time to, um, you know, to basically make behavioral choices so that you stay off of it. Oh, yeah, there's a lot of a lot of data about evil gain. Uh, I mean, do you guys know you probably do? Do you know uh, the website arrowwood.org? Yeah, I've heard about it, but I think it was through through your your book or maybe your other podcast with uh, Joe Rogan, maybe. Probably. Yeah. I was, yeah, I was probably pushing it. Um, yeah, yeah. I love to plug Arrowwood. It's it's the best information source on the web about every psychoactive drug you can think of you know not just psychedelics but everything and there's tons of information about evil game on that and everything else too yeah. so uh that's uh yeah here's turns out there's an arrowwood village in alberta really? it looks like a shithole <laughs> oh wait i better not say that someone might call in is, is there anything else you want to plug before we uh wind things down at all or i don't think we need to wind down no, yet, we don't do have we? to but i just want to make sure i get the plugs in well no i think that's it if if people want to uh well you know, is there things i want to plug boy because <laughs> for it um um well of course my book and as i say in canada Order it off my website, which is which is Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss dot com. Without the the, it's just Brotherhood. There's a way you can order it there. Uh, and the other things I'd like to mention are, you know, the Hefter Research Institute, uh, which is a nonprofit that um, I've been affiliated. We're 20 years old this year. And we're like maps, except much bigger and much smaller and much more obscure than maps is. Um, but we have a similar mission. Maps has sort of staked out MDMA and they're trying to get MDMA uh, approved mostly to treat post-traumatic stress syndrome. And Hefter has kind of staked out uh, psilocybin and we have, we're funding different clinical studies at different universities, Johns Hopkins, uh, New York University, 
University of New Mexico and pretty soon UCLA using psilocybin. So that's hefter.org, H-E-F-F-T-E-R, if people want to check it out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, Hefter, it's named Hefter. Uh, Hefter was the German chemist who was the first person to figure out that mescaline was the active principle of peyote. Oh, right. Yeah, I've never tried mescaline. It's never been around for my generation, I guess. I've never bumped into it. I guess not, although there are cacti, you know, there's the San Pedro cactus, which is also, you know, we think of peyote as the source of mescaline, but San Pedro uh, or Trichocereus is the scientific name, is the one that's used in the Andes in, in South America. And it is a shamanic medicine. It's called Wachuma in Quechua. It's been used for... Well, their archaeological sites go back 3,000 years B.C., so it was known and used there. And I don't know about Canada, but interestingly enough, it's it's an ornamental plant here, and you can go to cactus nurseries and, and buy this stuff. And it's completely, really? it's not restricted at all, which... I might have to try I that. Out. If I keep, I, I suppose if people like me keep talking about it, it will be. <laughs> yeah, better, better watch it. To well, you know, it's been around for a long time, and nobody seems too concerned about it. But you can actually make uh, San Pedro brew, and again, if you look at uh, Arrowwood.org, amazing resource. I mean, it will tell you how to make it, how to prepare it, and all that. And uh, that's a, you know, I, I tend to, I, I don't. I mean, I I see that synthetic drugs have a lot of good things to recommend them. I think MDMA is probably a very good medicine for for certain things. But my own preference is to go with the organics if you can. Join a day is my my philosophy. Yeah, yeah. Stick with the stick with the plants, and then. There's no problem with identity and all that. Like, that's the big problem that affects MDMA right now on the street. About 60% of it is not MDMA. Yeah, right, right. So you never know what you're getting. Yeah. With plants, it's much easier to be sure you're getting the real thing. Yeah, well, I know I used to drink a lot, and now I just smoke, smoke regularly. And if you asked my wife who she liked more, I can guarantee you who she'd pick. I imagine the smoker. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean this this is gonna be interesting too when when uh you know when when pot gets legalized as it gets more widespread, I think, you know, as happened in Washington and Colorado, if they'll just step back and let that experiment go forward, I think statistically what you're gonna see is a big drop in domestic violence. You know, as people switch from out, not that you were ever violent, but you know what I'm saying, mm-hmm. yeah. a big drop in, in that kind of thing. And also a big drop in uh, automobile accidents because, you know, say what you will, people are safer drivers on pot than they are on alcohol. 100%. Because you're, you're slow, for one thing, <laughs> right? You're not racing around. So I think... 
and if this is if if they're astute uh, you know epidemiologists who pick up on these trends it'll it'll prove essentially what what we're we're already what we already know but yeah you know, would, uh, would terrence be surprised at at uh, how pot is becoming like at least in a couple states how it's becoming uh decriminalized at least portland now too i just heard today that portland's voting to make uh, up to two and a half ounces legal oh it is well this is all good you know i don't think i don't know if he'd be surprised i, I think he'd be delighted <laughs> yeah. if it wasn't for you guys it, i i i figure it already be legal up here Oh. If it was, if it wasn't for us, <laughs> you, he means you Americans. Yeah. Oh, for the American, yeah, yeah, yeah. It probably would. It probably would. It, it. That's the way it's going. I mean, it's absurd. You know, the whole, the very idea that we should try to, you know, prohibit a weed, prohibit a plant of any kind. I mean, I've all, always said, I've long said, if they wanted to solve the drug problem, what you do is immediately you make a distinction between drugs and plants. And you uh -huh. say, drugs, drugs, we're going to regulate. Plants, we don't care. You know, you want to grow it in your backyard. You want to grow opium in your backyard. Go ahead. Who cares? You know, because where drugs become dangerous is that step between the crude, unrefined plant and and white powders. And you have to put them through a process to obtain those white powders. And though uh, those tend to be a lot harder to to, uh, you know, to handle. I mean, nothing not processed is good for you. Nothing processed is good for you. Yeah. I mean, sometimes you want white powders. They can be quite useful. But, you know, as a general rule, if they wanted to solve the drug problem, all they have to do is change perception and say, you know, we're not going to waste time with marijuana. You know, it's a benign it's a relatively benign thing and uh, we got bigger fish to fry bigger worries you know and same with coca and uh, all of these things do you think that'll happen in our lifetime i think you'll see yeah i do i think you'll see uh marijuana at least will be legal in a lot of places maybe worldwide but i think I think it will be legal in in the states and and legal probably in Canada and you know it's already getting legal in uh, you know in Europe Portugal has reduced their drug laws and so it's it's a slow process but I think within the next twenty years you'll see it go legal everywhere. Yeah, I feel bad for people that live like in the middle of the states, like Idaho and shit. Like guaranteed, you're not finding any good weed there. <laughs> Not no, a chance. You might, you might be surprised. <laughs> oh, really? I know. Actually, when I was in Minnesota, I I scored some pretty good stuff. I was fairly impressed. It was expensive as fuck, though. Yeah, there there's a lot going on in the basements of Minneapolis, uh, you know, and places like that. Uh, you know, I mean, just like there is in Vancouver, I, I guess most of the weed that's grown there is. It's not grown. It's grown uh, in mom and pop grow ops. Is that pretty much how it is? Yeah, no, yeah. It's well. It seems like it's just everywhere. And like the in the Fraser Valley, it seems like it's everywhere. Yeah, I, I don't think it's mom and pop. I think it's more uh, probably more semi organized crime related. I think you know a lot of grow ops from and and sort of people dealing it that way. Plus mom yes. and pop. 
yeah. large, yeah. large operations as yeah. well as mom and pop. Yeah. 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 Well, the thing is, again, this is, you know, once it's legalized, the profit motive is going to go out of it. And those organized crime cartels will find more lucrative things to do, uh, you know, because probably other drugs. But here's the thing. I mean, the whole the whole thing about drug prohibition is just completely absurd because it because it's impossible right the whole focus on drug prohibition is you have to prohibit these substances well you know the phenomenon of designer drugs proves that that's a complete waste of time right because you can have a molecule that you know has an effect and and you make it illegal and the next week some chemist comes up with a variation on that molecule that has a similar or the same effect. It's not legal. It's got a different, it's not illegal. It's got a different structure. And so then it, it becomes this whack-a-mole kind of thing. You know, they come up with a new con, new compound. We have to legislate against that. And pretty soon, again, uh, you know, technology is going to turn this thing on its head because I don't know if you're into... Uh, the singularity? Well, I was well, not quite the singularity, but I, I was talking about, I was thinking about 3D printing. Oh, oh yeah. Did you see that new 3D pen? I didn't see it. Yeah, no. it's kind of gimmicky, yes, I guess, yes, but it looks I pretty did. cool. Right, right. Well, there's a whole aspect of 3D printing involving chemistry. And, uh, you know, they're using 3D printing now to synthesize drugs, right? And, and what they do is they don't, the, the 3D printer doesn't build the drugs, but what it does is it builds the reaction chambers, if I understand it properly. And then you put the right precursors in and run the reaction and, and out spits the drug. And so you can... Um, it's going to come to a point where you want to you want a drug you go out onto the internet you download the template for the drug you run that plug that into your 3d printer and it'll make the drug for oh, you I can't, I can't even fathom that i, I just <laughs> and this is party time and this is already happening and this is this is keeping somebody up nights i think <laughs> uh, you know i mean it, i mean but that so that's where it's going it's impossible to control this and people have an inbuilt you know desire for altered states of consciousness anyway so the whole thing is drug uh, prohibition doesn't work because people are you know it, it just doesn't work people are not scared enough to avoid taking drugs that doesn't work what i've always said is if you want to deal with the drug problem it's you, it's all about education mm -hmm. and you you have to teach people not necessarily not to use drugs which is the whole threat thrust of drug education drugs are bad don't use them that's absurd people are going to use them that's like saying you know to 20 year olds sex is bad don't do it you know well <laughs> come on i mean it's a built-in impulse so what you have to do with drug education is teach people how to use drugs and that's it i mean and um, you know and you have choices you can say i choose not to use drugs great then 
those programs aren't for you. But if you choose to use drugs, then be informed about the substances that you're using and how to use them. That's not, we expect that of alcohol, you know, the mm -hmm. whole drink responsibly thing and all that. Well, any, any drug could be used responsibly. That's all we're advocating. Was Terrence talking a lot about that too? And, you know, in the, in the nineties and the late eighties? Oh yeah. Somewhat. I mean, he, he had, yeah, I mean, somewhat. He had a, a slightly different agenda to push, but you know, I'm I'm liberated from that because I don't have to. I don't have to promote the time wave and yeah, yeah, singularity, yeah. the end right. of the world, and all that because it's a settled issue. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, do you? Some of our listeners are probably going to be uh, Terrence fans. Are going to want to hear a bit more about about him. You mean tonight? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I have. Uh, go ahead. The uh, one place I can definitely find it is uh, what is it? Psychedelic Salon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, Psychedelic Salon. Very good. Yeah. Very good uh, source of information about him. Yeah, I mean, Terrence is interesting. He's achieved this. This. He's been gone twelve years. You know, he died twelve years ago. Um, no, thirteen years ago now. And uh, and yet he's very much alive, and he's very much on the web. He's all over the place. Mm -hmm. He's more popular than ever. You could say he's become like this virtual ghost haunting <laughs> the web. And it's interesting that the people that are listening to him were a lot of them were in diapers when he was at the top of his form, mm -hmm. and yet they've rediscovered him, and and he speaks to you know. He just what he says is very timely, even though it's years, yeah. even a couple decades old. He was transcends time. time in that respect. Yeah, definitely. So, speaking of of him and and his ghost, um, have you had any experiences uh, in that regard? Uh. Well, yeah, yes, and no. <laughs> uh, I, I have had uh, experiences in dreams, mostly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I have dreamed about him a lot, and I, I still do. But they're not particularly these huge dreams where, you know, you wake up and say, oh, my God, I... You know, I saw Terrence in my dream. It's more like they're just ordinary dreams. Yeah, yeah. You know, and he's there and we're talking and usually it's just like it used to be, you know, very casual. And it's sort of like you enter this sort of parallel time stream where, well, here we are, you know. And, and I feel like I'm, I mean, uh, some may disagree with me if I say this, but I feel like we were so close in some ways that he is built into my nervous system in a certain way. I mean, we used to joke that we were right and left brain mirror images of, of each other, you know, and, and that's why in a way when he died, it was such a wrenching thing because mm -hmm. I felt like I'd lost half of myself, uh, you know, but uh, I mean, I can channel him anytime. He's pretty much there. Um, and, and, you know, I mean, that, that's just a subjective feeling, but, yeah, but there yeah. you have it. Yeah. I didn't want to get too personal, but it. it's a question that, um, myself and, and, uh, one of our, 
fellow Grimericans, Red Pill Junkie, both wanted to, to ask you, so I thought I'd go for it. Well, I, I have had dreams about it, mm-hmm. but, but not huge revelatory dreams. I mean, one or two exceptions, but generally just dreams about we're in a place or in a situation and, and you know, you don't know when it was or anything, but it just seems like it was when uh, back when he was alive and we were just hanging out. I can never rem- remember my dreams. It seems never, hmm. or I don't. I don't even know if I dream. I figured it was because of the weed. Well, you know, I used to think that too because I smoke a fair bit of weed. But um, lately, I've been having dreams regularly, and, and there are actually some plants that that uh, are now available that really stimulate dreaming. Oh, is that the the stuff they make the tea out of? They make tea out of it. There's several, but the ones that the one I have heard most about is the African Dream Root. Um, Celine Capensis, I believe, is the scientific name. Okay, and that will induce dreams. Um, does it help you lucid dream? Because that's does. that's what I've been trying to. I, I got to get back into that. But for a while there, I was I was trying to teach myself how to lucid dream. Yeah, well, this this can aid that for sure. And and again, if you go on Arrowwood, there's information about that. Okay, good. Yeah, this works. Uh, I find for myself, I find uh, actually valerian, which I take to help sleep. It also induces the damnedest dreams I've ever had. I mean, it's kind of disturbing that way (laughs) but it reliably does and it does help me sleep so you know so those those things are out there i'm gonna have to look into that for sure because i miss hopefully i don't have any nightmares it's been a long time since i remember having a crazy dream you can learn from your nightmares just like you can learn from bad trips i mean the bad trips are the are the valuable trips you know if it's all just uh you know, fuzzy bunnies and happy hippies, you're not going to learn much. But, <laughs> you know, it's it's when the fluorescent, uh, you know, anacondas are after your tail that you learn stuff. <laughs> well, gentlemen, I, I think I'm going to I'm going to wind this up. Yeah. Yeah. Been- no, that's great. We'd like to uh, really thank you for coming on for sure. Okay, well, it's a pleasure. Yeah, and, and Dennis, we really liked your book. Um, both of us just loved it. So Great. Thanks. Yeah, I'll make sure I link to, uh, I'll, I'll put a link directly to your website uh, for our Canadian listeners. Okay, well, thanks for having me on. We can always do this again. Yeah, that's great. For sure, yeah, we'll have you on again uh, maybe, maybe next time, your next book, hopefully next summer. Well, maybe when you're here in uh, October, we can get together and do a live. And that was our chat with Dennis McKenna, the author of uh, Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss, My Life with Terrence McKenna. That was his brother. Yeah, what a fucking fascinating guy, eh? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I feel like it could have went on for another hour, really. Yeah, it easily could have. Um, Hopefully, we get to meet him at Paradigm Symposium. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. 
Um, yeah, I, you know, I was I've been looking forward to that for a long time, and it was it definitely lived up to the hype. Like uh, it was a fantastic book, and uh, it was good to get uh, the personal side of a, a few of the stories. Yeah, yeah, it was fascinating. Um, I'm kind of speechless about that too. Um, He's so humble and uh, just willing to throw everything out on the plate. You know what I mean? He's not, uh, you know, a lot of people that were uh, were doctorates like him. Uh, I believe he's a doctorate in, or he's a scientist at the very least. And uh, to speak so openly about these things, you know, a lot of guys wouldn't, uh, you know, that's the kind of shit they try and hide. That's what's inspiring to me is, is how he threw himself out there in the book and in these interviews, right? He just lets it all out. And that's, that's good because it's doing these podcasts too. It's kind of hard to, for me anyways, uh, to throw throw yourself out there like that so it's it's inspiring and uh to me and that it's it's okay to talk about this shit yeah exactly and uh it seems like that's more and more the case every day so yeah yeah so no that was good man yeah hopefully uh we'll have him on again down the road and hopefully we'll see him at paradigm maybe we can do a live show with him or something not live but uh in in house i guess yeah, recording. yeah he seems pretty keen we could throw all this shit in a duffel bag yeah oh yeah well if we're going to paradigm we're bringing the shit for sure yeah for sure <laughs> so uh you got some some tweet questions so if people want to ask questions for our upcoming guests like grant cameron and um michael cremo michael cremo they can tweet them what's your tweet yeah it's acra america yeah tweet us acra america any questions we'll make sure uh make sure it's out there that's going to be i think an ongoing theme we're going to try and uh, get your the listener's voice out there as much as possible so anything you want to know about these guys don't be afraid to to tweet us or email us and uh at the website you can always see our upcoming guests are all up there actually I, i'm going to put up grant cameron today or tomorrow all right and our emails graham at grimerica.com and darren at grimerica.com yeah and it's been good uh we're through this will be our 11th episode so i guess we're past that threshold this as they say the 10 episode uh, whether you're taking it or leaving it so it looks like you fuckers are stuck with us <laughs> right on and we're in every state except for three in the u.s right uh yeah i think it's hawaii wyoming and mississippi so if you know of anybody in those three states like get them on board so we can you know cover that whole uh country conquer america yeah we conquered Canada except for the none of the territories, but fuck the territories, really. Oh, that's mean. We got the provinces. That's all that matters. They're not listening anyway, so I'm not pissing anybody off. Right on. So, yeah, it's good. We'll uh, chat with you in a couple of days. Yeah, it's been great. We'll be back uh, in a couple of days here with Nick Redfern, and we'll have Redville Junkie on for that episode. So, as usual, uh, we'll have the show notes. We'll have links to everything we talked about. And uh, of course, links as well to all the music you all the music you heard. So, I guess in closing, I'd say I definitely recommend uh, recommend the book. We'll link to it on the website, and uh, we'll see you guys later. Yeah.